2: fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. If you've heard this podcast before, I'm still Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule. They can pick four things that they love or cherish, but they also have to pick one thing that they would like to be rid of, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian Alfie Brown, a young man with a lot of experience, Well, Alfie is 30, so actually not that young, but he's been doing stand-up since he was 18. He's entertained audiences all around the country and at the Edinburgh Festival, with shows like The Love You Take, Soul for Soul, and The Revolting Youth. If you've never seen him perform, you can almost certainly find it online, and I highly recommend it. It's my favourite sort of comedy. There's nothing safe about Alfie. Alfie and his girlfriend, the stand-up comedian Jessica Cave, have three children – And talking of children, I've known Alfie since he was born, as he is the son of two friends of mine, the composer of a number of West End musicals with Harry Hill, Steve Brown, and a previous guest on My Time Capsule, the actress and impressionist Jan Ravens. So, let's hope I don't talk to Alfie as if he's still a small child, as old people often do. Would you like a biscuit? You've grown, haven't you? Well, let's find out, shall we? As we listen to The Five Things Alfie Brown would like to put in his time capsule. Come along, dear. That's it. In you go.
3: Now be a good boy. My first item is going to be an empty bottle of Estrella Mm -hmm. as a little memento of... uh, My life is full of different moments that mean something to me with regards to a certain sporting event. Or what sporting event has uh, the most magical or unexpected memory for me. Mm. But I was in a bar called Bar Kick on uh, Exmouth Market. Where's Exmouth Market? Uh, It's in East Central London. Barrington sort of place. I'm so trendy. Yes. I was in there with my brother and a few of my friends. And... We were two or so goals down um, and then had to work our way back into it. And by the end of the game, there was, I suppose, more what I want to preserve than anything else is the feeling of elation. And the the one thing that I can remember about this game is in the final moments, the ball hitting the back of the net after seemingly like, everything was lost. Everything was so completely gone everything it was so unlikely that we were ever going to get anything back i remember throwing my beer bottle like not throwing it but it, it left me and before <laughs> my beer had even had a chance to hit the ceiling my brother's shirt had come off and he was just looking and he was screaming into my open mouth um <laughs> and there is uh, us beating British Dortmund in that moment and uh, my Estrella beer bottle. I'm not sure how um, how much attachment you give to objects in their relation to moments, but I think that's one that I'd want to make sure that I remembered.
0: Right. But now, I've let you
3: refer to this team as
0: us, them, they. And clearly, I know that it's Cardiff City. Yes, I'm big... Cardiff City fan Uh, no no so come on you better name the team you haven't told us who Uh,
3: Liverpool football club I thought I mentioned it maybe I didn't
0: so okay Liverpool Borussia Dortmund
3: in the final of It was in the quarterfinal of the Europa League and it's not the most glamorous and prestigious competition and it wasn't the final and it wasn't the biggest game that Liverpool have been involved in but I think in terms of Combative football banter. Fans of teams will often talk to each other in terms of, well, who's won, how many trophies, and whatnot. Yeah, and really, it's a subjective game of moments. And if trophies were the only thing that mattered, there would be no Brentford fans or Hartlepool fans or whatever. So it's about these moments, and it's a perfect storm of who you share these moments with and what these moments happen to mean to you. the joy of football in and of its uh, moments is a subjective phenomenon. Mm. And that just happens to be, I think, the most giddy and frenzied with joy. My little brother, did uh, 10 years my junior, who I had bred <laughs> to the express <laughs> purpose of being a Liverpool fan, um, <laughs> I, in, invested my allowance or pocket money or whatever it would have, was I would have received when I was 11 or 12 into buying him Liverpool football club onesies (laughs) and just not allowing any conversation in any other part of the family about what was going to happen. And then to feel that paid off in a moment of mutual ecstasy Mm. was, um, was absolutely spectacular. And it didn't even bother me how wonderfully and gorgeously haired his alpha (laughs) barrel chest is, Um, (laughs) He's got such a wonderful uh, spread of coverage of hair on this chest. And I didn't even mind in that moment. I wasn't jealous. No, well, ripping your shirt off, that is impressive. I don't even know how it came off. It was so quick. It was such an instinct. Well, this goal's gone in. So now, obviously, my top has to immediately be removed. I have no idea where it went or how it came off, but I just remember the next thing I knew after I'd finished screaming or flailing everywhere was (laughs) his arms. uh, I'm picturing Eric Banner. Oh, yeah. Eric Eric Banner, the Hulk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) If there was perhaps a Hulk who was triggered by uh, different emotional states, Mm. as in the Eric Banner being the anger then that could certainly have been, um, don't make me joyful. You wouldn't like me when I'm joyful. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it an empty bottle of Australia? Well, I mean, like I suppose it could be full. but It'd be, you know, if I'm going to... Uh, where am I taking this time, capsule? Anywhere
0: you like. You can bury it and uh, and then people in the future will look at it or you can keep it for your own dotage, as it were.
3: Well, it won't keep. I suppose I could have anything from this, um, this evening. A pint glass from the... Maybe a pint glass. I think that's a, I'm, I'm going to change this to a pint glass. Okay. The thing is that a bar kick, one of the most irritating things about it is it doesn't do pints.
0: I like the trendy nature of it. I like the fact that you're in this trendy bar and yet you have this sort of
3: really guttural reaction. It's a fantastically interesting place. Bar kick, it's this Spanish place that shows all the football on loads of different screens, but it is this rustic kind of gorgeous, no beer on tap, only bottled mm-hmm. beer and nice wine and little football fans getting ready, kind of amped up on their experience with little kind of charcuterie <laughs> boards. and uh, a Little tapas. Yeah, little tapas, <laughs> genuinely, yeah. It's a really remarkable place. It's gorgeous.
0: Were there foreigners watching this game with you, or was it all English people in that room?
3: Uh, no, I think there's, it's quite, uh, given the part of London and given the nature of the bar, I think it attracts a lot of European audience. Mm. I mean, the bar was teeming with people, and uh, me and a few friends and my brother were, we made a habit of going there each leg of the uh, Europa League final that year. I mean, of course, Liverpool have gone on to far greater things than this. But um, even more romantically in my brain, that was sort of the catalyst, the first moment for things getting better, perhaps. The hope had come back at that point. Yes.
0: You must have had many years of we'll never be the team we were.
3: Well, yeah, and, and the team that we were being... Before I ever was mm. Before I ever was conscious of any Glory or uh, Liverpool Victories could be viewed upon In some sort of boring everyday occurrence <laughs> I have no recollection of that But I suppose if I'm getting together A time capsule I'm going to have my little bottle Of uh, Australia, maybe even broken As it's collided with the ceiling In a moment of <laughs> abandon and joy Yeah, yeah. if the time capsule's for me I'm certainly keeping that And uh, I'll try and leave some better clues as to our time if it's not for me well
0: it's fine you can be as as mysterious as you like okay great i've watched a number of games with great crowds of foreigners i went to the euros in portugal with my family and we traveled around portugal watching some games live and then most of the games on television in bars but of course each bar would attract people from almost every country in europe I loved it. Apart from one experience where we watched Germany play a game and the bar was full of all sorts of nationalities. And then these two rather shy-looking German lads walked in and sat at a table in the corner. And some Dutch people we were sitting near stood up and started singing, if you hate the fucking Germans, clap your hands. If you ha-. And almost immediately, the entire bar
3: stood up and joined in. Jesus Yeah, I mean I know that there's a huge rivalry between the Dutch and the Germans in terms of uh, football and possibly more broadly speaking than that but I mean it's hard to imagine that those sorts of people exist and also I have this rather almost a sort of a a reverse xenophobia in operation whereby I think well the Dutch people are far too nice and too friendly and too cultured (laughs) and too (laughs) Dutch people who I've only ever seen in Amsterdam or Rotterdam
0: Ah, there we are you see Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were from the Dutch border, right against Germany, and they really hated the Germans, really hated them. And I thought, oh, that's a sign of Europe I've never
3: seen. How completely repellent. Mm. I wonder how the Portuguese feel about the Spanish. I don't know. I wonder if it's the same. They feel sort of dominated by them. Geographically, it's such a, you know, if Portugal was a room... It wouldn't be allowed to smoke, would it? It's got too many bits of Spain encumbering. (laughs) Which year was this? Was this 2004?
0: 2004, yes.
3: Was it the Euros where Wayne Rooney, the 18-year-old, burst onto the steam? That's right, and and then got injured.
0: Yes. And we were 1-0 up against France until about the 87th minute. Yeah. Yeah, I was at that game. Oh, wow. And then witnessed the reaction of all the English fans afterwards and swore I would never go and see another England game. (laughs)
3: I think I was put off going to England games as a nine-year-old. I actually had a wonderful experience at Euro 96. The only international football games I've ever been to. No, tell a lie. The only England international football games I've ever been to. And um, I saw England-Scotland in Euro 96 when Gaza scored that incredible goal. And then they squirted all the Lucas or booze in his mouth. (laughs) And then the other one was when Gareth Southgate missed that penalty against Germany in the semi-final. And I think leaving there and seeing all these angry men curse England. Mm. When I think my instinct was to say, well, broadly speaking, quite well done actually, I think. <laughs> semi-final against Germany. That's not I mean I'm only yeah. I'm only nine, but uh that strikes me as quite a good effort. <laughs> um, and we only just lost. And we only just lost, yeah. Yeah, I have so, I have such vivid memories of the nearly moments in that game. Mm. And yes, perhaps this memento will be a reminder of all of these moments Yeah. trickling down from this one in the forefront of my brain when I think of football and all the emotion there. in. Well, I'm going to put it into the time capsule. And the
0: moment that somebody opens the time capsule and picks it up, they'll hear the ping of shirt buttons hitting the floor.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, the ping of shirt buttons hitting the floor and colliding with all of the glass on the uh... <laughs> On the array of spirits behind the bar. <laughs> and maybe the thud of a button landing into a bit of on board. <laughs> of course, if I were there, I would end up ordering the thing
0: that I ordered at almost every restaurant we went to in Portugal. And nothing was in English. So it was always in Portuguese. And it always turned out to be a cheese and ham sandwich in soup. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, it was disgusting. <laughs> there we are. So we've got the bottle of Estria with a slight chip in the top in the time capsule as your first item. So, Alfie, what's your second item?
3: I think I'd like to... Uh, my my uh, girlfriend, my mother of my children, Jessie, mm-hmm. I think I'd like a pair of her glasses. They are such a huge part of her identity and emblemize so many of the things that I think I uh, adore about her. And I think I'd like to... Uh, I, I think I'd like to place those in the time capsule. And then again, if people find them, I think they'd find it very interesting to know what these uh, can it be sartorial. If it's, I mean, mm. it's a, essentially a form of medication, isn't it? But it's also glasses. as, far as you're wearing them. Um, so anyway, yes, a pair of Jesse Cave's glasses.
0: Mm. Did you vary the shape or the style of them a lot?
3: They are varied, yeah. They're a sort of acetate green at the moment, but there are some acetate purple. When I first met her, they were just clear. There's been a, a variation, but I think how she looks is a big part of her character. And I think how she dresses is uh, it's so incredibly unique. And I think rather and more so than it just being you know somebody's fashion sense which is as interesting or uninteresting as you would like to as as you are in fashion or whatever hmm. but I think how unique she is in that respect is telling with regards to how unique she is as an artist uh, which is I think one of my Uh, You know, should be a few things that you love about the person that you're with, but that's one of them. Yeah. What sort of art does she do? Um, She has done comedy shows in Edinburgh. She does illustrations, little doodles, which are... uh, She went to art school and then she got a job in Harry Potter, in uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince as Lavender Brown. Then uh, went back to her illustrating and doodling, still doing um, bits and pieces of acting. She built up a rather large Instagram following as this. um, Her brand was very much does these little comedy cartoon sort of doodles based in the idea of why isn't he texting me back? (laughs) The perennial he, whoever he might be. Yeah, And that makes me, uh, I sort of, in a way, represent a victory for her and her people. The fact that she's now got a long term boyfriend. A lot of her fans, I think, is like um, is like seeing one of your regiment get off the beach in Dunkirk. It's like, <laughs> oh, there is, there's hope. <laughs> She's now written a novel, which I'm halfway through um, because it's not released yet. So I've, I've only just been allowed to read it. And I think the unifying quality in all of her art is how immediately and viscerally she can point you in the direction of the most acute emotion. And... Um, The most naturalistic acting style can sometimes be dull, but the way in which she takes you through the journey of her brain and how tangentially the real human brain can work, you can be thinking, oh, I'm upset, but I also like crisps. Maybe I can be (laughs) upset and have crisps. and Just all the mad things that you can think in the period of a day and that she manages to articulate all these idiosyncrasies that we have, I think, and be truly honest and engaging about The processes that we have whether we're going through a feeling of rejection or anxiety or indeed in this book uh, grief she just writes it all incredibly well and I think also this sense of authenticity I think is the word also exists in her uh, clothes and what she wears and how she is And the center point of what she wears is her glasses so Mm. I think I'm going to put them in my time capsule
0: Yeah, you certainly can. There are a number of people out there who you look at the way they dress or their style in a way and you say, you've sort of imposed that on yourself rather than it coming from within. Mm. You've seen it somewhere else and it's not really you. But when you see someone who's genuinely got their own
3: style without a doubt it's it's incredibly attractive Mm, it's absolutely intoxicating because you immediately feel like they've given you something of themselves and that you won't have to suffer any artifice in the same way that you will do uh, with a lot of people Mm. and also it's an incredible sign of strength of character i think to go well i didn't need to see this on a mannequin or in a catalogue To know that it was a good idea I knew (laughs) I knew by myself Not like you You fucking slave to a picture on Mr. Porter on the internet, whatever it is you've done. I mean, that's what I I can't. I I mean, thank God she exists. She can dress me in an engaging way that looks like I've put up with it myself. (laughs) Did you spot this then before you
0: really knew her? Is it one of
3: the things that first sort of drew your eye, as it were? Yes, yeah, very much so, yeah. I mean, because I I met her, I was in Edinburgh, and uh, we were both at the festival, we were both in the same venue, actually. And um, she was introduced to me by my edinburgh flatmate, so not my flatmate flatmate but my friend who i was staying with and he said i really like this girl and i went to meet her and i suddenly like oh i can see why mm. she's uh, yeah a true original and i remember thinking that immediately wow and and also like she looks like do you know those kind of crap films that she's all that did you ever see that which is where like there's a geek yeah or like uh, greece i suppose is another mm-hmm. good example of the film where there's this sort of nerdy, geek, idiot character who's quite obviously incredibly beautiful. Yes. But the, the the director of the film has made sort of some half assed attempt at trying to make them not completely beautiful. So suddenly they take their hair down and their glasses and go, oh, my God, you were fucking incredible looking all along. I can't believe I didn't see that.
0: We didn't notice your perfect face and your gorgeous eyes. <laughs>
3: Below those hideous, hideous glasses and that fact that you've got your hair a bit up with a clip. Uh, Yeah, she looked like she tried quite hard to disguise her beauty. Perhaps there was, uh, she was on the run or something. (laughs) You see, now you remind me of the first time I saw my wife. Yes.
0: I I think that may be a story that we all tell. Or in fact, it's true for all of us. When you fall in love, you see someone and there's something individual about them that immediately attracts you
3: yes i i I've, I've often thought like back to whether my mind is playing tricks with me or whether I'm having like memory bias, and then I quite quickly realized that a it doesn't really matter no. and uh, b I don't think I am because i I don't think that i first of all I'm not sure if everybody has had it and that it's necessarily that important if you don't have it, then don't worry that you don't have that because it can happen at different speeds in different places for different people. But also, I remember the guilt on the way home, thinking that I'd felt that for somebody who had been introduced to me as the girl I fancied. Yeah. Um, so, oh well, that's not uh, something I can pursue. I had the opposite. I
0: told the friend I was sharing a house with that I'd met this girl and I really fancied her.
3: Mm. And the next day, he asked her out. Oh. I know. Well, I mean, thank God that we're telling this story backwards. Um, And I I can at least be safe in the idea that you got the girl. Yes, indeed. In the end. She didn't want any of that. No,
0: no, but she did go out with him. All right.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Only for one date.
0: So there we are. That's my story. Well, it's lovely. But your story is... um, So did it take you a long time to... Get over that guilt of
3: thinking, oh, God, I fancy her as well. It was actually quite a long-term thing. In I was with somebody at the time. So, I mean, we didn't break up for another few months afterwards. Mm. And I mentioned to Jessie that I thought she was uh, lovely. Mm. And uh, she went, we should go out on a date. And uh, we did. Mm. And then we had a one-night stand. And uh, we didn't speak for four months. And then she texted me while I was at gig in Darbe, um, telling me that she was pregnant, um, as the story goes. That story is available as a stand-up routine on the internet, should you wish to hear any more. So if you want to know any more... Look it up. It'll be online somewhere. <laughs> Brilliant. And then
0: she put her glasses on, and you went, wow, Miss Jones. Yeah, the opposite of uh, Clark Kent. Okay, well, then we'll put Jessie's glasses into the
3: time capsule as your second item. So we're on to number three. Um, I was thinking about what I wanted number three to be, and whether I would like it to be a recording of a sound of laughter or if I become uh, bereft at some point Mm. or maybe a shot of adrenaline that I could uh, (laughs) perk myself up with um, if ever I'm feeling like I've got the need for a performance and it's no longer available to me. Mm. But I think one of the shames of this is that I have so many things that I sort of would like to or in a different time would be able to be committed to a time capsule but so many things exist nowadays in the cloud, online, on on computers, and I have real, I have no affection for any of these things on a computer. I, or I look at things like pictures of my kids, and I've got that th- none of them really exist physically. And if they do exist physically, it's because they exist on my phone or on a hard drive somewhere. So I feel like technology has stolen from me the the beauty of the way in which we treasure these sorts of things and uh, capture these moments in time. And I was thinking about that a lot when I was thinking about what to commit to the time capsule. So the one photograph in the wallet, that sort of thing. The one photograph in the wallet, but also it could be, what if I wanted to put my vinyl of Abbey Road in mm-hmm. there? Well, then they're going to dig up the time capsule or I'm going to have it in years to come and go, oh, great. That's on Spotify. <laughs> and of course, these things will have special import to you. The The, the vinyl of uh, Abbey Road has great significance to me and still is worthy of a place in the time capsule. Mm-hmm. But... I do feel um, like it's been robbed slightly of its importance or something like that. Yeah, the individual magic has gone. Exactly.
0: Everybody has access to it instantly.
3: Yes, and I think there's something missing about the tactile nature of things. And also how much... I mean, I remember my stepfather telling me about the day that Who's Next by The Who came out. Mm. And him and his classmates organised to get into school early that day. There was a vinyl player in the classroom... And they organized to get in early so they could all listen this group of friends to Who's Next. Mm. And can you imagine thinking you knew what music was or the way it was going to play out and then hearing Who's Next for the first time? <laughs> well, I mean, you might not have to imagine. Um, <laughs> I can't even conceive of it. And then to have this physical thing that was the physical embodiment of this magic you were experiencing, mm. the relationship to that possession and that that physical product i remember it was very intense i I saved up money for albums before and then put them on as soon as i got home and experienced that or i used to have a discman that i carried around
1: mm.
0: but the vinyl album is a thing that is missed i think perhaps it's it's me not understanding how to work things properly but i do remember with vinyl albums that thing of sitting there while it was playing just reading the sleeve and that's a joy that has disappeared or maybe I just don't know how to do it now.
3: Well, I think it's harder generally to convince yourself that you're just going to do one thing, especially when it's only filling one of your senses at a time. Yeah. I think with the vinyl, you would sit down, maybe have your gorgeous old leather headphones that you would put on <laughs> and the wound up cord that went into your player and sit down in the chair that sat beside your vinyl player and just listen to the album all the way through. And what are you doing? I'm just going to sit down and listen to this album. An album has now become something, perhaps disrespectfully to those who make albums, is something that you do whilst you're doing something else. I'm going to go somewhere, so I'm listening to an album. I'm going to drive somewhere, so I'm going to listen to an album. Mm. I'm going to clean or something and listen to an album. Or, in fact, I'm going to listen to an album, but not in the
0: order in which they intended to be listened to.
3: Well, the idea of that, yeah, is completely from the past, isn't
0: it? Maybe that's a good thing, but I do remember a story about Paul McCartney saying to his mate, do you want to go and see Jimi Hendrix? He's playing in a club down the road tonight. Walk five minutes down the road. He didn't announce he was arriving, didn't tell Jimi Hendrix he was going. And they'd released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on the Friday night, and this was a Sunday night. And Jimi Hendrix walked out on stage and said, Good evening. Going to start with a great song from a new album, Jump, 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 da-da-da-da-da. and played with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And Paul McCartney said it was one of the most magical moments of his career because the idea that in two days, Jimi Hendrix had absorbed this song. And then performed it was just
3: fantastic. Christ, I mean that's so incredibly spectacular. Mm. It's hard to know. It's hard to know where where everything could have gone from there. Really, I mean, I I often feel like I'm guilty of being a a bit of a fuddy duddy or uh, over romanticising the past. But the, me and my friend did play a game once where we um got a chart out of how many weeks in a year? Fifty two. Fifty two. So one versus one, two versus two. 52 times 1970 versus 2010 i think it was and we wanted to contrast what was number one in the charts versus what was number one in the charts in 2010 Mm -hmm. and i think the closest 2010 got to taking a week was rihanna and eminem versus the partridge family (laughs) And even then, I was, I was inclined <laughs> to give it to the Partridge
0: family. Did you not come across one of those weeks where suddenly it was, you know, Ernie or something? Not in
3: 1970. Uh, 1970 starts with My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. Uh, there are golden years, though. Yeah, but I can't remember what our most recent golden year would have been in terms of pop charts. And I think that's what I'm referring to. I, I think there's still great music being made that's really exciting, but it exists very much as counterculture. Um, whereas the prevailing culture in that time seemed to be a lot more exciting. And that seems like a more positive experience to me because you can really feel a nation or maybe generation really getting behind something Mm. in a way that doesn't so much seem to be the case anymore.
0: I've always assumed that that was because I was getting older and that I was therefore biased towards those things. But I did hear Virginia Plain by Roxy Music on the radio the other day and thought fucking hell Mm. what a brilliant song and also so weird how the hell did that break through you know why would you as a nation decide yeah that's a great song we're all going to buy that
3: yeah what you're allowed i mean somebody's i think there's one like it's a jackson five song but it's what their slow one i'm now kind of can't place it that was number one in 1970 it's about six minutes long I mean, there's Mm. just no way you're getting into the charts with a (laughs) six-minute track nowadays. It's two and a half minutes, and then, right, cut the chord, it's over. We've all lost the will to live in our minds, and we can't believe you took (laughs) up this much of our time.
0: And I heard that terrible fact the other day about the Spotify generation, which is why lyrics start almost immediately at the beginning of a song. You don't have any intros anymore, because if it just has an intro, people get bored before people start singing, so they'll flip they'll move to the next one. So you have to go, boom, in with the lyrics straight away. And in fact, inevitably, almost straight in with the chorus. That's
3: really interesting. I have this sort of feeling with these songs that they're written very much in the same way that star signs are. They're just specific enough so that people can go, oh yeah, that's me, isn't it? But broad (laughs) enough so that everyone can think that yeah absolutely everybody every Adele song is sort of like oh yeah I've had an experience a bit like that this song must be for me hey I'm a woman <laughs> yeah but not actually engaged or exact enough to really give you a genuine feeling of anything specific or yeah. bit interesting beyond that first moment
0: that's right that Adele album that's named after me because I was once 18
3: yes <laughs> anyway um so I think I am gonna stick Abbey Road the vinyl in there
0: I sort of pushed you down that road, though, didn't I? Did I do that?
3: I mean, it's a toss-up between that and my... I had a Discman when I was um, 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. And that was back when I would go into the shops and spend what uh, extra money I had. I suppose that when you're that age, all money is extra money. Have no <laughs> I, had, I had no dependents. <laughs> um, to speak of. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, I would just go and buy records and uh, then and listen to them on the way home and then sometimes with my then girlfriend we would sit and listen to um I had the West Side Story soundtrack and we'd listen to the West Side Story soundtrack but it had been mixed in stereo so it was a nightmare, one earphone each. You'd have to fill the other one in on what was going on. They do actually like to be in American, okay? And she'd go, well, that's very interesting because I think my group are being sarcastic about it.
0: My one wants to go back to Sun One. Oh, really? Mine's got,
3: <laughs> mine has
0: a boat you can get on. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, interestingly enough, I do remember Beatles because then quite often you'd just get the sort of a harmony track. It's mm. quite interesting. I quite liked it.
3: Yeah, really interesting. Also, I remember um, "Crosstown Traffic" being a good one for that. Going back to Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, because has that beginning where it goes from right to left.
1: <laughs>
3: uh, have you, have you got the ding, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mine hasn't started yet. <laughs> okay, so Abbey Road. It is a great album. So I think you're very wise to put it in. I went on a holiday to Italy when I was a teenager. And we all forgot to take music with us, apart from one person. And so the only record we had for the entire two weeks was Abbey Road, which we played over and over and over again. And the fact that we never got bored with it proves that in the end, the love you take is equal. Can't remember the rest of it.
3: (laughs) I spent two weeks listening to the thing. I know every word. My first uh, Edinburgh show was called The Love You Take. Was it? For that very reason, yeah. And it actually started with, um, so my walkout music was... Brilliant. Then it ended with... And in the end, the love you take. Yes, I sort of used that track as bookends to the show. But is it right that that line
0: in that song
3: was the last
0: thing that they recorded as the Beatles?
3: I know that Abbey Road was the last album recorded. Yeah. Paul asked on to say, come on, let's just have one more go at being the Beatles. We did your fucking let it be nonsense. Yeah. Let's have a go at being the Beatles again one last time.
0: It's lovely, isn't it? Because I like to think that the last thing they recorded was, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. So the album Abbey Road goes into your time capsule. So two items left. One, something that you want to keep. And the other thing is something you want to get rid of. Okay, we're going to pause here and leave a gap so that the podcast provider you're listening to this through has the chance to play some adverts. Fingers crossed. See you in a minute. Welcome back. Does that fingers crossed thing work? I suppose it's nice to feel you have a small influence on the randomness of the world. Still, one thing I can control is when we get back to the podcast to find out what else Alfie Brown would like to put in his time capsule. See, I could have done it then, but I'm not going to.
3: I'm going to do it now. Actually, now. For the purposes of myself wanting to read it again, because it means a lot to me... I had a copy of a play that I went to go and see. It's the only play I've ever bought on my way out of the theater from the bookshop and it's called The Pillow Man by Martin McDonagh. And it just did a remarkable job on me, that play uh, in terms Mm. of how incredibly funny it was and the darkness of the humor and going to see it at probably quite a formative age for me in a comedic capacity the depth of the darkness that that the humor was uh, coming from and the tragedy and how tender it was and how extremely frightening and the fact that it could exist as uh, such an interesting political statement and such a tender human statement and uh, all of these things in combination and that there could be so much that I could keep on going back to it. Um, And I lent it to my friend, and he lost it mm. and i think i've done that twice lent it to a friend because i wanted them to read it and they've lost it and i've ordered another one so i suppose i'm going to uh, i would want to put it in the top castle to uh, ensure that none of my <laughs> stupid fucking friends ever lose my playing <laughs> and also that way i can make sure there's at least one place i know where it always is what's it about it is about a writer in a totalitarian state who is being investigated because a succession of murders and attacks in the area recently have been quite closely uh, resembling the plots of a lot of his children's short stories. (laughs) He writes these uh, quite harrowing children's short stories, The Pillow Man being one of them.
0: So he becomes a suspect.
3: Uh, he's being investigated, and I've I've always been. Have you ever read the um the Pinter short one for the road? No. As an actor, I'm really bad at reading plays. It's not one. It exists in a sort of a dark and dusty corner of one of his compilations somewhere. It's not one of mm. the ones that you would have heard of. But it's again the same sort of premise: a writer being interviewed by the kind of demented and uh, rather vindictive head of police. Mm. And it's good, but it's very short, and it's. Uh, I think what Martin McDonagh does really well in his play is he gives everybody everybody, a sense of humanity and also twists what you think about the people constantly. Whereas whilst uh, One for the Road is quite entertaining, it, it, you're able to make up your mind pretty early about what you think about these people, and that remains consistent.
0: But as a prime example of the fact that I'm an actor who doesn't read plays or really know anything about his art, I've not heard of Michael McDonagh.
3: There's two brothers. There's Martin McDonough and Michael McDonagh. Have you ever seen um, In Bruges with Colin uh, Firth and Brendan Gleeson? I have, yes. That's by Martin McDonough.
0: Ah, right. Yeah, well, that's a fantastic film, isn't it?
3: Yes. And he's now, you know, he does these films. He did that Seven Psychopaths, is that what it's mm-hmm. called? And um, Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh, fantastic. All completely brilliant films. And so, yeah, I went to go and see this play at the Littleton in the National Theatre with David Tennant and Jim Broadbent in it, no less. Must have been shit. It, it, was, uh, yes, it was, yes, it was just so good. Um, <laughs> again, so I'm sorry if I'm talking to you about a play that you don't
0: know. I'm perfectly happy to admit that I'm very, very bad at paying any attention to my own craft. I mean, there are too many plays to know all of them, aren't there? Um, yeah, but no, Alfie, look, I've seen all those films that you mentioned, and I never noticed who wrote it, so uh, I'm really not interested in other people's talent. Clearly. <laughs>
3: Fair enough Okay
0: How old were you When you saw The Pillow Man?
3: Must have been 15 15 or 16 Maybe younger Mm. It was also a time When I went to the theatre Quite a lot Because I think my dad Was quite into the idea Of trying to get me To be a person That went to the theatre more And was quite into the idea Of him being a person That went to the theatre more Mm. And quite into the idea well no he was just um, single for a period of time and rather than take a woman to the theatre he decided to take his old son so uh, there was a period of a few years where me and my dad would go to the theatre together quite a lot and saw uh, lots of different things of varying degrees of quality and would enjoy talking about it afterwards over uh, fish and chips. Yeah, that's quite good, isn't it? Turning up at something without really knowing if it's going to be any good or not.
0: As a student, on the Wednesdays, Wednesday afternoons, when people were supposed to be doing sport, I would get on the bus and go to London and watch a play, watch a matinee. Wonderful. It was
3: great. Wonderful. My dad was always quite keen to arrive at the theatre with very little idea of what the play was going to be, or what the plot was, what the reviews were like. Mm -hmm. He would get some sort of vibe or maybe a recommendation from someone somewhere. Go and see um, this at the Almeida or whatever. And he would go, okay, great. And then he would make a point of not finding anything else out about it. So we could all just try and make our minds up afresh and then seeing how our minds correlated to those who are employed to have the opinions and mm. either feel good about ourselves or stupid or just pig-headedly unwavering from our opinion yes i'm right yes i remember i was very <laughs> stuck on the idea that i didn't like a play called the goat or who is sylvia by edward Albee, mm. about a man who falls in love with a goat jonathan <laughs> price explaining to his wife that he is in a genuine sense in love with this goat and his son the rather annoying Eddie Redmayne, who at that point would have only been a teenager, um, just saying over and over again, You're forking a goat. You're forking a goat. Um, but now, having reread it, I just think it's a completely brilliant play. So I, uh, I'm not sure that we always got it right.
0: That is the nature of going to see these things. It depends on what sort of mood you're in. Yeah. You get that from the other side of being on the stage. You must get that as a stand up. Mm. You do a show and it absolutely goes a storm. And then you get another crowd of people in, in the same room, and then it just doesn't work.
3: I remember once I got heckled with some sort of a rudimentary entry-level heckle like, you're shit. Mm. And I remember saying to the guy, listen, I'm not being very good right now, but I'm not shit. I'm just not being very good. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're sort of right. But I am being shit, but I'm not <laughs> In and of myself, shit. I don't know whether that makes you feel better or worse about the money that you spent. I can only apologise, um, but there will be another act on after me, and uh, and hopefully they'll be on a bit of good form. But I, I think <laughs> I remember having quite a long and drawn out conversation with this bloke, going, "Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. This isn't like there's something about me missing. I'm missing a spark. I concede that totally. I apologise for it as well. But you know." And you genuinely felt that way at that time. I quite often feel that way. And sometimes you get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you get away with it. Yeah. I mean, you must, have, I mean, have nights on stage where you go, Oh, I think I was, I was a bit in my head tonight. Or yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I didn't
0: feel it. Rote, I think, is the thing that always worries me is
3: I sort of know I did things
0: sort of by numbers, as it were. Well, I did this for the last two weeks
3: and it's worked. I'll do it again. <laughs> so I'm always so annoyed with myself when I do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think phoning it in is the expression, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's what I've become. But I mean, on your, you know, you've done a show 60 or 70 odd times, and you're going to now do it to Darlington and it hasn't sold that well. (laughs) You think, fuck me, for the 70th time, Darlington in front of 20 people. Mm. I'm either going to have to really try and get myself up for this or fail to get myself up for it and have to phone it in. Or you just find yourself phoning it in and think, oh, come on. These are the 20 that turned up. They don't deserve this. Yeah. Really annoying if you get halfway through and you've been phoning it in and they're loving it. (laughs)
0: And you go, why did I
3: bother? The difference between perhaps phoning it in and then giving yourself enough to what you're doing, but maintaining control enough that you're not totally losing yourself to it. Or where should I be? What area should I pitch my brain? And even if I knew, could I get it there? I love that about your performance. I love the fact that you tantalizingly
0: allow the audience to think that you've gone off on one. And it's never clear if you have gone off on one or whether, in fact, this is all part of the act. And then, having done it, you will then say to people, that was what I was supposed to say. I have rehearsed that.
3: Mm. Well, I think one of the big fun things to play with in stand-up is uh, control. Mm. And how I would differentiate between you know, going to see a comedy show by somebody who is a comedian and some stand-up is the sense of play that you were getting from that comedian in a moment. How much of what they are saying are they saying to you, the audience? And could this comedian be saying all of these things in exactly the same way in front of the bathroom mirror? Because if they could, that's not stand-up No, in my brain. Mm. Uh, But then I've been trying to work stand-up out for 15 years and three months. Uh, (laughs) So... well, they do say 15 years is about the point at which you start going, I think I might just be getting on top of this. Is it 15? Is it 15? I think certainly it does take a good 10 years to go, oh, I think I, I think I pretty much feel comfortable on stage now. It'd be quite a rare thing for me to get nervous at a gig. Mm. I got nervous uh, recording my show which is something mm. that I'll plug if I'm given the opportunity at any point you can plug it immediately if you like on YouTube if you look up Alfie Brown imagination you can watch my latest depending on when you're listening to this um <laughs> full uh, stand up comedy special all on YouTube so I would have got very nervous doing that because I knew that I had to get it right enough that it was uh good enough to preserve mm. But no, generally speaking, quite rare that I'd get nervous now. I don't know how anybody could put up with doing it for this long if they still got nervous. No. Or in fact, in a way, didn't enjoy it. Mm. I mean, there's a certain sense of the adrenaline that I get, like not nervousness, but my, I can feel my energy. I mean, I still, in lockdown, not having had gigged regularly for over a year now, when I get to eight in the evening, I go, Huh, oh, right, let's do it. What are we <laughs> doing? I'm, I'm finally ready for work. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'm an appalling morning person, possibly because of this, or maybe my job is this because I'm an appalling morning person. But mm-hmm. I really feel like perked up and ready for action at around, uh, well, around now, uh, around the time we <laughs> was speaking. Okay, let's restart the program. And... <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, well, then we'll put the play The Pillow Man into the time capsule.
3: Gorgeous, plain orange Faber and Faber. Play copy. It's a, a very pleasing thing. Mm. Uh, I always felt very pleased to see it on my shelf, possibly because it was so fucking often absent. There we
0: are. Uh, I'll hold up. Uh, that's. I went to play this play in Edinburgh,
3: and I bought that. And no more shall we part. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. Mm. And good. I can't remember it now. Well, you bought it. it must have been all
0: right. I know. Isn't that weird? At the time, I thought, wow, that's fantastic. I must get a copy of that and have a look at it again. And now I know why I got it, because it's clearly
3: forgettable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, I've just seen something brilliant yet forgettable. That's the perfect thing to write. If you can write anything, write something brilliant and forgettable, a movie that people have to keep on rewatching. Oh, they're doing that play again. That's Shakespeare for you. Brilliant but forgettable. All we can remember are the titles. (laughs) They're doing Macbeth again. Anybody got any idea what it's about? Also, it's one line per play that we basically remember, isn't it? It's Be or Not to Be, or (laughs) This is a Dagger I See Before Me. And then, you know, then that's too much. Then we go, Alas, poor Yorick, and then that's not the real line.
0: Well, that's theatre for you. Forgettable. Okay, (laughs) right. (laughs) Alfie, we're going to move on to your final item. So this is something that you'd like to reject from your life.
3: I think I'm going to give you my smartphone. Is it the bane of your life? Yeah, 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 yeah. Very much so, yeah. I've even got a... um, Over there, I bought a Nokia 1990s phone. Mm. Or a dumb phone. And I've got (laughs) an iPad that I love. And if I want to sit down and read the news or maybe even look at Twitter, as some people are prone to do, and see the latest thing that's happening, you know, with Boris Johnson, or maybe you've shaved your beard off and you look very good, or (laughs) who knows what might have happened on Twitter that day. Then I can sit down with the iPad. But the fact that it's always in my pocket, I've this day released my aforementioned uh, stand-up special on YouTube. Mm. And that means that I've had to be on social media all day and retweeting tweets that have been nice about me, reposting Instagrams and all this stuff the things that it's doing to my brain and the amount of time i'm losing to it and i think the things that it's doing to my short-term memory and twitter as a thing generally if i could put that in the time capsule i'd like to put it in the time capsule not only to get it away from me but as a warning to future generations beware (laughs) this was the beginning of when it all went horribly wrong the chemical makeup of it and what it wants to do to your brain. The way in which it wins essentially is by making people angry. And then the more angry somebody is, the more likely they are to engage. And the more people engage, the more successful you are. It's much easier to get somebody to engage when they're angry than it is. To go, I just loved Graham Norton on Radio Two today. <laughs> Nobody's saying that. They're all saying, "I hate him," and "I hate you," and "I hate everything else." why stop your life to be positive about something of course not it's when you, there's an imbalance that you want to correct in the universe go this is shit and this is shit and i'm very angry that not everybody feels as awful as i do about the state of the world that is weird
0: i think that that's the way it's gone i mean i tend to say look at this isn't it lovely or what a great day on the beach or that sort of thing and then the moment that you do actually put something in you think is positive i mean i tweet about this podcast a lot yes so i put my guest this week national treasure tim vine i mean it's a reasonable thing to say i think he's almost taken over the mantle of tommy cooper
3: yeah absolutely i would i would i would describe him absolutely as a national treasure
0: and then immediately somebody wrote back national treasure in capital letters
3: completely unfunny what a waste of time that is my youtube video went up today first comment there bad that Was the first word that <laughs> appeared in the comments bad <laughs> luckily? There are now hundreds of comments they are all positive, and that was the only negative one. But it was, it did make me laugh, but it was the first one. And I responded to it, I just went, Oh, jump Jesus, sorry about me. I'm, I'm oh, that's awful. <laughs> sorry, you think it's so bad. It's such a playground mentality, <laughs> and because, like. Jonathan Franzen, the author, has quite a good line about Twitter. He says, um, I don't trust any medium that doesn't allow for any meaningful use of the word although. (laughs) That's exactly right. Very good. Everything's too short for an although. So, Mm -hmm. and whenever anybody responds to that, I'm sorry, but I don't think that, Mm -hmm. "Oh, oh, yeah, that's great. Everybody's so sarcastic and sniping and aggressive. And I think because you're protected, essentially, by... Not having to reckon with the gritty emotional reality of another human being in your presence. Mm -hmm. In the same way that perhaps when you're driving your car and somebody drives into your lane without indicating, you can say, Why don't you, I'm going to fucking kill you Mm -hmm. and scream it. And you go, Well, essentially, I'm not and I'm safe. But that was quite a useful release valve for me to have accessed. And I think Twitter uh, occupies the same space for us, apart from that it gets through. It's like you've managed to erect a walkie-talkie in the uh, opposing person's car and (laughs) manage to funnel your (laughs) abuse directly into their personal space. And then if they answer, you can turn it off. Yes, exactly. (laughs) exactly. (laughs) You're a prick. Well, you're a prick. Oh, blocked. It's just children. It's just children at work. And I think how small the thing is Mm. means it's just on me the whole time. The thing with the iPad or something else is that you can make the effort to go and get it, make an event, like like the unfurling of a newspaper, mm. the getting out of the iPad. But the phone, it just becomes like it's always there. Like like when you it's like, like falling asleep at the wheel, you suddenly notice <laughs> I'm on my phone again. I'm on my phone, <laughs> on my phone again. And it can't be a good look for the kids to see me sort of staring into this blue light the whole time. And it disrupts no. my sleep. Put it in the capsule, mate. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. And I can't leave it alone. And I just feel, I mean, this is a weird moment to remember as in any way. um, And it wasn't joyful, but there was something, I think probably how my emotions were working at this time is probably quite an interesting thing to investigate. But I remember vividly putting my tent up at Glastonbury Festival in 2008 in the middle of the night Mm. and hearing somebody shout across the campsite Michael Jackson's dead, and then, like matches catching one another, voices started going across the camp Michael Jackson said, Michael Jackson's dead, and then it was in the paper the next day. so you can imagine that if we in the age of the smartphone, which I think we were the this was the year before the smartphone, mm. it would have been everywhere by that point because it was already in the papers the next day. Mm. I mean I suppose it, it it was news like that and bad news obviously i don't I'm not emotionally invested in whether Michael Jackson is all right or not. So I just found the news of something dramatic happening in the world quite titillating. And that news spreading like wildfire across a campsite was, uh, was exciting.
0: The mentioning of Michael Jackson dying always makes me feel guilty because I went to a school fete and Mohammed Al-Fayed was a sponsor of it. Mm-hmm. And he had donated a ticket to go and see Michael Jackson at the <laughs> O2 and to meet him afterwards. And my son was, it in, no, stop laughing, stop it. Is it not funny? Okay, sorry. <laughs> so he donated this ticket and I spent a lot of money on the raffle tickets because I knew how much my son would love to be at the opening night of the O2 and then go and meet Michael Jackson afterwards. Imagine. And then when the draw was made, we didn't win. And I was really pissed. I've spent about 50 quid here. And we got in the car and turned the radio on and it said, Michael Jackson's dead. (laughs) (laughs) And my first thought was, oh, that's all right then. (laughs) Isn't that terrible?
3: Well, it's very funny. (laughs) Whether or not it's terrible or not is not really my area. I can tell you that it is definitely very funny. (laughs) And that's another thing is that, you know, Twitter would have you believe that you're meant to be your, uh, there's a very limited amount of things that we can care about. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I doubt any of the Jacksons are going to be listening to this. I (laughs) I don't know everything about your listenership, but I'm comfortable in my assumption that the Jacksons do not feature among your listeners. No, not yet maybe after this <laughs> yeah them and
0: their lawyers yes oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, right so we will take your smartphone okay good and bury it deep in the ground good thank you
3: that's it we're done thank you very very much for having me i really appreciate it i've uh really enjoyed it actually and if anybody does want to watch my special on youtube then please do, and also please comment on it—something positive, uh, mm. not only to defeat the baddie who said something nasty, uh, but uh, because it helps the algorithm and it helps other people to see it. Uh, so, any thumbs up and any comment on there.
0: I mean, I just think it's a great shame, Alfie, that you know Michael Jackson can't say, "Hey, man, that
3: was really bad." <laughs> uh, sure, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: beautifully put down thank you you have been listening to my time capsule hosted by me mike fenton stevens my guest was alfie brown do google alfie and watch him in action it's great stuff And please subscribe to this podcast to have all episodes past and yet to come made instantly available. Then once you feel ready, you can rate us and maybe leave a really lovely review. You can follow us on social media to find out what's coming up every week. It's at mytcpod on Instagram and Twitter. And there aren't many Mike Fenton Stevens in the world you'll be relieved to hear. The theme tune is by Pass the Peas Music and can be downloaded or streamed on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. And to honour Alfie's style, I'll break with tradition and tell you that our next guest is also a stand-up comedian, as well as an actor, musician, composer, and by next week, an author. It's the wonderful Izzy City. Now, don't get used to being smart like this, OK? Bye. Actually, sure I can't think why I don't do it every week. Must be mad.